And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And as we said in the earlier reading from Hebrews 3 and 4, if you're experiencing deja vu, that's quite accurate. We are looking at the same passage, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. And as you know, that's part of our series where we are looking at the vision of our church. That vision, as we said, is very simple. It is to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. We believe not just in our town, but throughout the whole of the Metroplex and throughout the world. And as we have said before, every one of these activities are things in which the world is involved. The world is very concerned with forming who you are defining who you are along ungodly lines. But the gospel transforms you and brings you back into a right relationship with God through Christ. The world is very concerned in channeling you into communities defined by race and sex and color and ethnicity and class and socioeconomic status and all those things. But the gospel forms new communities that tells us that they were all made in the image of God, and the only thing that matters is whether you are redeemed by Jesus or not. The world is very concerned to execute what they call social justice, where they define the winners and the losers. But the gospel brings true social justice to bear where everyone can be a winner. And the world is very concerned with shaping the culture around us, again, along ungodly lines. We are called to engage that culture and to renew it. And so that is the vision that we have before us. As you know, every week we are taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of our vision. And once again, we come back to Exodus chapter 20. And that's because we've been dealing with the last of the major sections here, which is that of cultural renewal. Over the last month, we have seen that we as Christians are called to not just simply understand the culture and be able to read it, but we have to be able to engage the culture and we are to shape the culture with the gospel. And last week we saw that one of the very key ways in which Christians are different from the culture around us, in fact, one of the distinguishing marks of Christians is that we celebrate the Lord's Day. We keep the Sabbath day. And as we saw last week, the Sabbath is a day for worship. It is a day for physical rest that our bodies so desperately need. It is a day of spiritual rest so we can feed ourselves spiritually. It is a day to be refreshed and a day to look forward to that day when Jesus refreshes us fully in his return. And that means that the Sabbath is not to be a day of a burden of, oh, all the things I cannot do. But instead, the Lord's Day is to be a time of joy, a time of fellowship, a time to celebrate who we are in Jesus Christ. So we looked at all that last week, and we also took some time to look at some of the ways in which we can best keep the Lord's Day. And I'm not going to go ahead and rehearse all that today. Instead, what I want us to do is to see some of the ways in which the fourth commandment can guide us and encourage us to live as followers of Jesus. So with that, let's read the fourth commandment once again, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Our God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it is preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, I want us to look at that first verse, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and especially to focus on that first word, remember, because it has implications for how we are to live as Christians. There's this call to remember. Now, some years ago, I came across an essay written by Joel Beakey that outlined five major themes to which the Sabbath points. And giving credit where credit is due, that's where I read that. But those five points, I think, fit in very well, those themes all fit into what we're looking at today because they all flow out from remembering the Sabbath day. So when we are told to remember the Sabbath day, it means that we are also to remember creation, to remember eternity, to remember your soul, to remember your king, and to remember God's grace. And those are the five points for today. We are to remember creation, remember eternity, remember your soul, remember your king, and remember grace. So let's start with the first of those, and we are to remember creation. When we look at verse 11, just as we saw last week, we saw that the Sabbath day is grounded in the creation. Verse 11 said, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That reminds us that the Sabbath, the keeping of the Lord's day, or the keeping of the Sabbath as it was known in the Old Covenant, was not something that started at Sinai. It wasn't after God had gathered his people, redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, and brought them to the mount there, and then gave the Ten Commandments, that he then said, I have this thing called the Sabbath day, and you are to start now. No, he says, remember the Sabbath day. It is a creation ordinance, something that comes from the very beginning And therefore, when we remember the Sabbath, even as we're told in verse 11, we are to remember our creation. The Sabbath points to creation, and that brings two points to mind. First, when we remember the creation, we remember that we, as those made in the image of God, were created to emulate the pattern that God has laid out for us. This work week of six days with one day of rest. God created in such a way to lay that pattern out. No matter, regardless whether you think that those days may have been literally six days or t- uh, of 24 hours or longer periods of time or so on, it is very clear that there is an analog there in God's creation to that of the work week. And that's made clear in the commandment when it uses it as a basis, grounding the fourth commandment in creation. Genesis one twenty seven tells us, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. He created us in the image of God. So as image bearers, we are to emulate God. We are to behave like God behaves. And that means that on the Lord's day, we emulate God's rest. And if you remember, if we go on from Genesis 1.27 to verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was just a few short weeks ago that we looked at this passage and we said, there is the cultural mandate. There is where we are called to have dominion over the creation. And so we begin to see what happens 
When we remember the Sabbath day, we are remembering our creation. We were created as God's image, not only to rest, but those other six days. We have been placed as vice regents over the creation. God is the one who rules the creation, but he has put us in his stead to have dominion over the creation. And in this way, we also emulate God's dominion. So we are under the authority of God and creation is under ours. That's the first thing that we see when we remember the Sabbath day is we remember the creation. We remember this great privilege that we have been created in the image of God. What a tremendous thing that is. And that we are to be like God, emulating him both in exercising dominion over the creation as we work for six days and then as we rest on the seventh. There's something further that it reminds us of, and that is as we remember the creation, we also remember that there is a purpose to our existence. You and I and this world around us did not come into, into being through random chance. We are not the products of chance. When we remember creation, we remember that God planned us. God created us by design. He created us lovingly. He created us purposefully. He created us uniquely. God could have created all at once, but instead he took six days. And all the commentators, I think, are right when they point out the fact that as you read the account in Genesis, it shows that God is building a habitation. He's building up very purposefully, very purposely in his design. There's thoughtfulness. There's purpose behind what he's doing in that design, building up to the crown of creation when he creates man on the sixth day. And man is a special creation, a direct creation. For example, when you read on the third day that he caused the plants to come up from the ground, it's pretty clear that he used immediate creation here. But when he comes to the creation of man, the special, the crown of his creation, there's a special creation there. Everything has been built for that. And so when we remember the creation, we are reminded that your existence is not pointless, that you are not a mistake, but rather each and every one of us is unique, made in the image of God. Now contrast that truth with the futility and the pointlessness of evolution and the things that it teaches. Some of you will be familiar with probably the strongest, uh, most a well-known proponent of evolution today, Richard Dawkins. He is an an English evolutionary biologist. He is also a staunch atheist. In his landmark book, The Blind Watchmaker, written back in 1986, he had this to say. He said, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life, has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. And he would go on later in his book, River Out of Eden, Our Darwinian View of Life, where he now presents an atheistic worldview. In fact, he called himself an atheologian. And he said, nature is not cruel, only pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. People of God, when we remember the Sabbath day, 
And we are reminded that every Lord's Day is a refutation of evolution. Every Lord's Day is a refutation that your lives are pointless, that the world around us is indifferent. Because every Lord's Day points to the purpose with which God created us. And it shows us clearly that we were created by God. So every time that we enter into worship together, we are reminded that we are special, that we are made in His image, that we are not the products of chance, that we were made by God, that we were made like God, that we were made for God. And He has made us with an express purpose, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we're to glorify God in all that we do because we are under His authority and created for His purpose. And there's one last thing when we remember creation. I know I said there was two, but actually there's three. When we remember the creation through the Lord's Day, we also remember that we are finite Remember that we are the creatures, that we are not God, right? We were created according to a pattern, as we saw, that pattern of seven days orders our lives. This has done so from the very beginning. And it is God who established that order, not us. So you see, despite what we think, we're not the ones who create the patterns to which we are bound. We are limited, we are finite, and we follow those patterns no matter how much we thump our chest and pretend to be independent. Each and every one of us here must eat and drink and sleep. None of us here can be everywhere at once. None of us can do anything and everything that we want. We are limited, we are finite. And we have to function within the established order, an order that has been defined by God and created by God. These are the things that that we remember when we remember the creation through the Sabbath day. And even though we are finite, our second point is that the Sabbath also points us to eternity. So when we remember the Sabbath day, we also remember eternity. As we saw last week, the Sabbath provides us with rest, both physical and a spiritual rest. But as we saw earlier in reading Hebrews chapter 4, that rest is not final. The celebration of the Lord's day points us forward to that final rest when Jesus Returns, And that's a clear reminder every Lord's Day that this world is not all there is. That this world will come to an end. And then a new age will begin when Jesus returns. Here we have this world that's been ruined by our sin, ruined by our rebellion, and we're unable to do anything to fix it no matter how hard we try. But the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead broke this world system in which we lived. And he ushered in a new era. He brought in a kingdom that is even now growing and expanding and overcoming this broken world and doing so one heart at a time. So when we think of the Lord's Day, it reminds us of Jesus' resurrection, which points forward to that final rest that comes in eternity. That rests from all sin and trouble and heart and hurt and heartbreak. And that should cause you to reflect. If you're sitting here this morning, cause you to reflect. How will you then live day to day in light of the fact that there is such a thing as eternity? We're reminded of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's a very stark and realistic and sobering reminder that we can't simply live as we please. 
In fact, Hebrews 10.26 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed, it is. And so how are you living in light of eternity? Have you taken into account that your days are numbered, that one day you will stand before this dreadful living God? And how will you answer for your days? The good news, of course, is that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And there in those two verses, the author of Hebrews tells us about the first coming of Jesus, where he deals with sin, and the second coming of Jesus, where, as he puts it, he will come to save. And you might say, well, wait, didn't he come to save in the first one? But what he's making very clear is that when Jesus came the first time, he dealt with our sinfulness. He dealt with our rebellion. He dealt with the consequences of our sin, which is death. We owed God an immeasurable debt that we are unable to pay. But the good news is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I are incapable of living. And when he went to the cross, he died the death that you and I deserve. He paid the price that we so richly deserve, taking upon himself the full wrath and condemnation that was due to us for our sin and our rebellion. And because of that, he dealt with sin. And now we who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and in what he's done, we are told that because Jesus rose from the dead... His resurrection points forward to our resurrection when he will return, and then our salvation will be complete. And so it is that through the death of Jesus on the cross, our condemnation for sin was removed, and in his return, our salvation will be completed, for then we will enter into that final rest. That's the rest that eternity points us to. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior on that day, they will enter eternal unrest. So I ask you, eternity is coming. Are you prepared then to meet with God? As we remember that Sabbath day, as we remember that Sabbath day, we also, third point, are to remember our souls, our souls. The Sabbath day, as we saw last week, is a day of physical rest, but it's also meant to be a day of spiritual rest. So very important to us. We live in a culture that emphasizes the care of our bodies. We're told that we have to eat right, that we have to exercise, that we have to avoid anything that harms us, drugs and tobacco and this and that. And there's tons of plans out there, tons of diets and advice, all telling us how we can care for ourselves physically. But there is so little emphasis in our culture and even within the church on the needs of the soul. And yet that is so desperately a need that we have. And that's because we're so much more than just bodies. We're not just meat bags. We're not just a collection of atoms and energy. Remember, as we saw in the previous point, you are eternal too, made in the image of God. And your soul is that part of you that reflects the fact that God is spirit. And so we were created in his image, both body and soul. As we've seen, we've been made special, we've been made unique, and we made beautiful And so many of us do put emphasis on our bodies, but are we caring for our souls? This beautiful gift that God has given us. It's like a beautiful mansion that sits there abandoned and derelict 
overrun with weeds and paints chipping away. That's where so many of us have left our souls uncared for and untended. And you have to understand that without proper soul care, you will become spiritually exhausted and in no condition to fight when sin overtakes you. The problem, of course, is in caring for our souls that we're so busy with everything else that grabs our attention. We're so busy with work and with recreation and with even our families that we neglect to take care of the soul. But your soul does need rest. Your soul needs time. You need to take that time to feed your soul, to clothe your soul, to strengthen your soul, to patch up all the hurts and the bruises. Reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.7. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And Paul reminds us that, yes, there's something to be said for working out physically, but so much more to be said for working out spiritually. And the beautiful thing of this is that God has given us a day in which we can focus on caring for our soul, and we, we can put our attention, set aside our regular and otherwise good worldly pursuits like caring for our body, and instead be sure that we focus on that. And he's given us the tools with which we can pump our spiritual muscles. He's given us these tools for godliness that we call the means of grace, the word and prayer and sacraments. And it's interesting that all those can be found preeminently when we gather together as God's people on the Lord's Day for worship. As we hear the word read to us and preached to us, and you can, of course, read the word throughout the week. As we pray together as God's people, which you can do throughout the week. And as we share together as God's people as a body in the sacraments, showing our union with Christ and the benefits that we gain from being saved by him. So God has given us these tools. Let's make use of them. Let's remember the needs of our soul because the Lord's Day has been given to us for not just our physical rest, but so that we can feed and care our soul. As you remember the Lord's Day, remember your soul. But also, fourth point, remember your king. When we talk about the Lord's Day, we recognize that it is a special day of worship. As uh, some of you may have heard during our Coffee and Questions, uh, very briefly we talked about uh, the fact, of course, you can worship God anytime during the week. But it is on this day that we are particularly called to worship. Now, think about what worship is. By its very nature, worship is an act of submission. Worship is an act by which you acknowledge the worth of another as being of greater worth than you. And in our case, as we gather to worship God, we acknowledge the worth of God. Listen to these words Psalm 95 6 often uses a call to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That language of bowing down, of kneeling, that's the language of submission. And we do so because when we gather for worship, we are acknowledging that God is the sovereign over our lives, that he is the king. Psalm 47 verse 2 says, For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You see, people of God, the world sees us when we gather on Sunday morning. The world sees when we rest from our usual labors and come to worship. And to them, it seems crazy. Because when you take time to set aside one day out of seven for resting and for celebrating who God is and for worshiping him, you run the risk of making less money in your careers. You run the risk of falling behind in your work, in your schoolwork, in your uh, housework. You run the risk of not participating in events that others are in and gaining their disapproval. And yet, 
When we honor the Lord and take that time on the Lord's Day, we're demonstrating that we are subject to an authority of someone who is greater than ourselves. And it demonstrates that we will obey someone other than ourselves. In short, no matter what the world demands or thinks, when we celebrate and worship on the Lord's Day, we show that we answer to God. It also demonstrates faith, doesn't it? Because when we celebrate the Lord's Day, we show that we trust this king to bless us even while we rest. We trust that he's going to provide for our needs even if we take a break one day out of seven. You see, back in the ancient days, God's people, as we know, were tempted to do the same that all the nations around them did. That is to go after their idols. And the reason they did that is because Israel was not trusting in God to be sufficient. Israel was not trusting that God would provide for them. And nothing has changed today. Today we are just as much tempted, perhaps not to go after idols of wood and stone and metal, but we are tempted to do the same things that the people around us do all the time. And that is to to pursue the idols of wealth and the idols of recreation and the idols of wokeness, if you want to call it that. And it becomes an act of faith to trust that God will be sufficient for us and he will provide for us if we step away from our worldly pursuits and rest for one day. And it challenges us then to really ask the question, do we believe in our king? Do we really trust and believe in his promise? And when we gather as we have done today and set aside this day to keep it holy, that is to say to set apart and different from the other days, we are showing that indeed we do submit to the sovereign king, and we do trust him. And that king, of course, in whom I'm speaking of is none other than Jesus himself. And I want to point that out just to be absolutely clear that there's no doubt. Jesus is that king. You remember when he entered into Jerusalem in John 12, 13, it says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So this Jesus is a king, but he's a king in a very different way from every other king. Matthew 21, 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This king is different. He's not a king who lords it over others. He is a king who is humble and lowly. And more than that, John 19, 19 reminds us that Pilate wrote on an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This king was a king on a cross, one who was willing to suffer and to serve his people, one who was willing to die for them. He's the one who said in Mark 10, 45, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that we have. The one who in Isaiah 53 and following is called the suffering servant who served this people at cost, the cost of his very life, who was willing to kneel down and to wash our feet as we read about in John 13. This is a king different from every other, but make no mistake, he is the king, the king. Revelation 1.5 refers to Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, preeminent over all authority and all rulers. Revelation 19.16 says that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the high and exalted ruler of all that was ever made and all that is. And the only appropriate response to this king is that of the wise men 
when they encountered him in Matthew 2.2, they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That is the only response to this great and exalted king, is to bow down and worship. And when we worship on the Lord's day, we are acknowledging Jesus as our king and sovereign over our lives. And as we remember that, of course, we remember then the last point. As you remember the Lord's Day, you also remember God's amazing grace. As we saw last week, the Ten Commandments are laid out for us in two different parts of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, which we have just read, where we saw that the Sabbath is grounded in our creation. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when the Ten Commandments are repeated, this commandment gives a separate reason for why we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And that points out that not only is the Sabbath grounded in creation, but also in our redemption. Deuteronomy 5.15, after laying out, remember the Sabbath day and so on, says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, we unfolded that in great detail last week, and just simply as a reminder that we remember God as both creator and redeemer. When we remember the Lord's day, when we set it apart, we are to see him as both through Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh and who redeemed us. And when we do that, we remember the great grace that God has shown us. It's not that he redeemed us from bondage in Egypt, from slavery to the Egyptians, but from the greater bondage that we all had to sin. And it is this great deliverance that we worship. And as we said at the outset uh, during our announcements today, today is the 4th of July, right? And everybody takes uh, uh, this time once a year to remember the freedoms that we have in our nation and how our nation was founded. But every Lord's Day is a greater celebration because we remember the independence that Christ won from us for us, that independence from the guilt of sin that hung over us and for which we were guilty and therefore owed God our lives that led to our death. And we have also won through Christ independence from the power of sin. We're free to no longer be slaves to sin, as Romans 6 tells us. We can live for God. We can live lives that honor him. And all this is because of the grace of God. So when you remember the Sabbath, you are especially to remember the grace of God in your lives. We remember that God created us. We remember that he is good to not just us, but to all people. Matthew 5.45 says, Your Father in heaven causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is it that you and I have that is not a gift from God? Every good thing that you have comes from him. James 1.7 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is always a good God, and every good thing that you enjoy, your homes, your jobs, your families, this church, our redemption, and on and on and on and on, all this comes from the great God. And still, and still with all that, we've been an ungrateful people who've rebelled against God and who have ruined this marvelous creation in the process, and yet God shows even more grace on top of that where the king of heaven of whom we just spoke came down out of heaven to earth, and rather than coming to condemn the world, he came to save it. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, for all those who then believe, for all those who come to this great King, Jesus Christ, he grants us eternal rest. Rest from our suffering, rest from our hurt, rest from our pain, rest from sin and from temptation and from self-destructive behavior, and ultimately rest from death itself. As Hebrews 4.10 said, we saw earlier, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so as we remember the grace of God, we are reminded we are to abandon every attempt at our own righteousness, every attempt to trying to get right with God on our own or to fix this world in our own strength, but instead to rest fully upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we trust in his redemptive work, then true rest comes. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, our Lord said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So people of God, find your true rest in this Jesus. Surrender all your works and your life to his and you will know that rest for all eternity. Let's pray.